Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 93rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Mark Galley, CEO at Zayas. Mark is an experienced executive who has an innate ability to identify fragmented markets and technology that need consolidation. He also has a special talent with leading the go-to-market strategy for high-growth software companies. At Mark's prior company, he was the chief revenue officer at Tribe HR, where he helped deliver 1,100% sales and 470% customer growth, which led to an acquisition by NetSuite in 2013. Zayas has built a B2C CRM system, which is bringing together marketing automation, analytics, and CRM software in one marketing platform. The company has raised over $50 million to date, including a $30 million Series B round, which was announced last year. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Mark's journey through his professional career across multiple companies, his ability to grow a company's market share, and his philosophy on go-to-market strategy, a deep dive into what Zayas does and how its B2C CRM works, plus a look into the size of the company and scale, great advice for anyone trying to work their way into a CEO position, how Mark thinks about hiring, including one interesting tip that has benefited him in the long run, plus a lot. Okay, quick side note. We have a new series on VentureFizz, and it's called Inside. It is a video interview with a functional leader at a company. It could be inside sales, inside engineering, inside product, etc., etc. Each video gives you lots of great information about the company, how this particular functional area operates, hiring, culture, and more. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash inside to check out our collection of videos. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mark. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. It's uh, great to be here. So, Mark, uh, I was doing my research, as I always do before these interviews, and I saw on your social media profiles that it said uh, cookie connoisseur, which I have to admit, uh, one of my weaknesses is a great chocolate chip cookie. Like, my wife makes the best ones, and anytime I come home and there's a fresh, fresh batch, uh, like, my, my exercise for the day is destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm the, I'm the uh, same way. Like I actually love oatmeal raisin cookies. Um, uh, chocolate chip, absolutely. My second favorite and believe it or not, one of the local bakers uh, here in Boston actually has banana chocolate chips. So if you have the opportunity to do that, it's a really good, um, uh, you know, good, good to mix it up with those as well. But yeah, so I, I just happen to love cookies as well. I mean, and, and, Interestingly, you know, different times in my career, uh, I've always peppered in cookie breaks. So early in my career, when I was at Siebel Systems, this was in the early 2000s, we had an executive briefing center, uh, you know, at, at uh, headquarters. And if there were no more meetings, you could go down at three o'clock and uh, grab as many cookies as you want. And I just remember that was just, you know, one of those one of those fun things. And you know, even today at Azaeus at, uh, Wednesday is uh, cookie day. So we uh, bring in cookies for the office and, uh, and we sample all, all, the, all the local bakeries. So it's just, uh, you know, one of those personal things I love. Oh, uh, that's so much fun. <laughs> that, that is a nice little perk. That's right. Well, let, let's go way back. So where did you grow up and, and what were you like as a kid? Yeah, you know, a, a really unremarkable story, uh, for better or worse. So I grew up in a in a small town in Connecticut, um, so actually close to the Massachusetts and New York state border, so the northwest corner. Um, you know, really, really small town. Um, you know, we only had one street light, no uh, gas station kind of kind of a, a thing. And uh, you know, I was I was a pretty quiet kid. Um, uh, you know, I. I um, uh, worked hard at school, took uh, pride in academics, but um, you know, other than that, it was it was very very typical. 
Now you went on to Cornell to study engineering. So were you always kind of tinkering around with things? I was. So actually I was fascinated with how things worked. Um, and uh, actually one of the hobbies as a kid, um, kind of, well, as a, a teenager, I actually got my pilot's license uh, when I was uh, 17. So you can only get your license when you're 17. But uh, I first soloed in an airplane before I uh, drove alone. So you can wow. solo when you're, yes, you can solo <laughs> when you're amazing. 16. Yeah, and, I, and I started taking flying lessons when I was 14. So, um, you know, I was always fascinated with how things worked and that, you know, science and engineering uh, you know, clearly, clearly sort of, sort of fit into that. So that's how I, how I found, found my way into, into engineering. And then how did you get into the, the tech industry after college? Yeah, it was really interesting. So, um, uh, I, I actually was an engineer. My wife always laughs about this. I was an engineer for 11 and a half months and uh, she always laughs and she's like, why wasn't it 12 months? I was, uh, and and for me, and I love engineers, my f entire family is full of engineers, uh, but it just wasn't for me. Like, so I wasn't inspired by that work. And um, it was in the, in the mid nineties, actually, when, when, the, when the initial tech boom was happening. I lived out in San Francisco, actually spent the bulk of my career in uh, San Francisco. So 15 years there, only moved back east. Uh, in 2010. But anyway, so I found myself not enjoying what I was doing in the mid 90s out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I sort of stumbled into the tech industry. They were interested in people who had technical degrees and they would and they would train people. So I actually joined a company called MicroStrategy, which is still around. It was pre-IPO at the time. Um, and they would take anyone with a technical degree and they would train them on SQL to do database design. And I had a couple fellow classmates from Cornell that were, that were there and, uh, and they recruited me in and that's, and that's how I first joined the uh, tech industry. And MicroStrategy, that, that was a high flyer back in the dot-com go-go <laughs> internet bubble days. I remember, I think I owned their stock at one point. That's why I remember. <laughs> yeah, it was a very infamous company, actually. It was in great alumni, but yeah, so you, you may remember it. It was super high flyer, went public while I was there, you know, and, and they, before the tech bubble burst, it was like two months before the tech bubble burst, there were some accounting irregularities. They actually, if memory serves me, I do, were, yeah. Yeah, we're uh, recognizing revenue recognition. Revenue. Yeah, <laughs> you nailed it. Stage, yep. And uh, within like two days, it lost 80% of its value. And then the entire NASDAQ cratered about two months after that. Yes, lots of lots of memories from those days, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then on to Siebel, which I remember Siebel quite well, too. Yeah, Siebel was great. So um, I joined Siebel uh, after going to business school, actually. So I was at MicroStrategy. Then I went to business school. While I was at school, that's when uh, the whole tech bubble burst. But um, I went back out to California after business school, and, and I really wanted to see how the, how the quote-unquote killers did it, right? Like, because it was, you know, they were public at the time. It was the fastest-growing company in the history at the at, at the uh, time. And I really just wanted to learn from a company that was successful, how they operated as a business. And um, so I was fortunate enough to be 
able to join Siebel and um, uh, I was I was part of the Siebel Analytics Group. And even though it was part of the tech nuclear winner in the early 2000s, um, we took the Siebel Analytics product from a standing start when we acquired a small company. And within two years, we were the second largest product line right behind the Salesforce automation uh, product. So even though the tech industry was shrinking and Siebel was laying off as a group within it, we were just exploding and, and uh, growing. So it was sort of the second generation of an analytical app. If you think about MicroStrategy in the late 90s, and there was business objects and Cognos around at the same time, it was as reporting was becoming business intelligence. And then uh, Siebel was essentially the first generation of a pre-built analytical app selling into a line of business head. Because we owned the Salesforce automation, we could give it analytics. Um, and uh, so we actually, as a department within Siebel, were just really, really growing in the, in the, in the whole tech nuclear winter. So it, it was a great opportunity to learn from people who had done it uh, before and, and, and really learn how to, how to grow an organization. Now, as far as your career path, as you mentioned, you went back to, to B school at Kellogg, right? That's right. And was the goal like at, at Siebel, you were uh, you know, part of the um, you know, product marketing team. So w- was that kind of the plan of kind of moving you more towards uh, kind of go to market type of roles? Yeah, you, you, you nailed it, actually. So at uh, MicroStrategy, I was part of the post sales consulting group. So it was really learning how to work and service clients. And, you know, when you when you become a manager and I was and I was a district manager at MicroStrategy, you started to spend time with the sales team because it was, you know, who's the trusted advisor who's actually going to implement the product. And then you nailed it. When I went to Siebel, the real logic there was, yeah, I want to understand how absolutely sales and service come together, but how do you think about product marketing? How do you think about marketing? How do you think about positioning and identifying needs of customers, feeding that back into the engineering and product teams while also at the same time, you know, understanding customer needs and then how do you position a, a, a product um, a, against those needs to ultimately accelerate on the go-to-market side. So I, I think Siebel, one of its real brilliance and one of its um, uh, core competencies was in fact kind of product marketing and the intersection of go-to-market as well as product and R&D. And uh, I, was, I was really, really fortunate to be able to participate in that, in that group and, and really learn multiple, dis- multiple disciplines. Now, a common theme that we're going to talk about is your ability to, obviously, you know, it's a team that does this, but uh, the ability to grow a market share for a company based on, you know, solving what I would expect the critical pain point. So, uh, you know, the next, next couple of companies, you definitely did that in, in a more of a marketing leadership role, right? That's right. Yeah. So I've actually spent the last, I think it's 15 years now, uh, essentially being the first go-to-market person into four different companies now. So I love what, what, what wakes me up every day and gets me excited to go to work is solving the puzzle of why do people buy and then ultimately matching that against your go-to-market model, but your product development as well. So once you identify why people are buying the need that, that they're trying to fill and then the, the method they want to buy, how do you build an organization to match both of those things? So it's really been a passion of mine. That's one of the reasons I love startups and I've been fortunate enough to be part of successful companies is just if you can, if you can match a company and a process to those needs from a customer, you can really, uh, really grow companies. Now, eventually, Mark, you, you did you know, go back to New England. So what led you back to the East Coast? Yeah, I mean, really, it was family. It was, uh, so my son was two at the time, and my wife and I made the decision to move back east just to raise him closer, closer to family. 
And then so, uh, you know, you definitely were starting to get into the weeds of earlier stage companies and, uh, you know, some of these companies in the Boston area, like Video IQ, you know, you had this great success of getting the company to that point of, you know, significant revenue streams. Yeah, that's right. I've been really, really fortunate. So I've done three companies now here in Boston, Video IQ, Tribe HR, and now Zayas. And, you know, really what it has been is, is, is just identifying what the need is in the industry and for the economic buyer. And, you know, I think Boston's just a fantastic area because like, you know, strong go to market capabilities here, as well as strong um, R and D and, and uh, product knowledge as well. So it's a fantastic like ecosystem to be operating in because there's a bunch of well-established companies with people with scale experience but at the same time, it's a really robust, um, you know, startup community as well with just all the, all the core talents you need to really build the company. Now, we're going to talk a lot about Zayas, but, um, you know, the company prior, uh, Tribe HR. So that company, uh, obviously SaaS, that was kind of bringing this, um, you know, comprehensive HR uh, suite to SMBs, correct? Yeah, you, you nailed it. That's exactly what it was. I mean, and, and I hate using analogies of companies to today, but if you think about it, it really was workday for the SMB. And, you know, in the SMB for HR applications, you know, you would kind of have a payroll or an HRIS system, which just essentially kept everyone's profiles in it. And then you would have a performance management system. You'd buy that from a separate vendor and you'd have an applicant tracking system. We were the first targeted SMB platform, which actually brought all three of those things together. And that was, um, that was highly differentiated at the time. And the economic buyer ultimately for the price of just one of those really valued getting three different systems that were, you know, built on the same platform or basically connected and communicated. So you could manage an employee throughout the entire life cycle from applicant tracking straight up into the core information that you need to run a payroll system, you know, all their different salary and benefits and even even progression and, and life changes. But then fundamentally, how do you also manage them from a performance standpoint? And to do it all in the same system was revolutionary at the time. And that's really what uh, fueled our growth. And obviously, the, you delivered 1,100% sales and 470% customer growth, which are amazing numbers. Thus, um, you know, NetSuite came in and obviously uh, acquired the company. Yeah, it was it was um, it was a really hard decision whether or not to ultimately sell. We um, we had a, a great term sheet for a Series B for the company, and at the same time, Netsuite swooped in and said, "We want to make this a strategic acquisition." And it was the largest acquisition Netsuite had done at the time, even though you know we were twenty people and and you know we had only gone through a very modest Series Series A at the at the time. So we were really at one of those critical inflection points of, of continued growth. But NetSuite really wanted to expand their uh, platform capabilities. So they had ERP, they had some e-commerce in the overall platform, but what they were missing was HR. And so they wanted to build on their, on their own suite and you know, chose to uh, make a strategic acquisition. And we were fortunate enough to be the ones that they picked. Another common theme for different companies that you've uh, been a part of is the fact that you're, you know, 
consolidating things so it's a lot simpler for the end user and uh, the company that you're at now Zayas like so what does Zayas do and, and like what led you down the path of joining the company yeah it, it's actually fascinating you say that because you know back in the in the 90s and not many people probably remember them but you know we used to always talk about best of breed versus sweet and today you nailed it it's 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 really this notion of consolidating capabilities into into a single platform to ultimately help either a division or a buyer or a, a set of users and Zayas fits that mold so we sell into business-to-consumer companies, so B2C companies, and we've developed um, you know, the only business-to-consumer CRM platform out on the market space. And what we're really doing is we're bringing an analytical engine. People today often call them customer data platforms, but they're not any different than data warehouses or even big data in the past. But it's focused in on identifying who the customer is and providing transparency as they move through different stages of engagement or the life cycle. You know, in a retail environment, it's first purchase, second purchase, loyalty. In a subscription business, it might be acquisition, replenishment, for example, or even from a publisher, it's first engagement straight up to, you know, um, uh, signing up for a newsletter and then consuming specific content. But it's understanding that customer journey through an analytical platform, but merging it with a marketing automation system in the exact same application. Because oftentimes there's this divide between the insight and understanding that an analytical application has and then the campaign management and the messaging, whether it be of email, push notifications, segment syncs into social platforms. How do you bridge that overall gap? And literally for decades, that's been a problem people have been have been trying to to uh, solve and b2c crm is truly a platform which can scale and absorb and automate the interpretation of a customer journey and identify who mark is but then also fire off and orchestrate campaigns against them so you nailed it it's this consolidation to really empower uh particular power users within the organization yeah, so, so when I first met the founder of Zayas, a gentleman by the name of Spencer Pingree, like, you know, I was really intrigued because he has experience in this. He actually built AOL's first data warehouse in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so he had experienced this gap between the analytical system and the marketing automation and how the technical teams often have to get involved and help marketers. And he recognized that the key to a company's success is to bridge that gap and empower the marketer. So that's number one. I loved his vision. And, you know, having been in analytics most of my career, I, I also saw that gap. But I think what really drew me in was how strong of a technical team he had already assembled. You know, it was less than 10 people when I joined. It was pre-revenue, but this was the best technical team that I had ever seen this early in the overall company. They had a handful of design customers, so the product could clearly scale at the time, too. So it really just drew me in because big opportunity playing in a big space with a top-notch team, um, it, 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 it was easy to convince me to uh, join them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I mean, it makes logical sense now, right? Like as a marketer, if you have to deal with, what is it on average that marketers deal with like 12 different applications to power their market. So like that's, that's insane. And, and you can't, you know, wrestle that, that animal every day. So to have everything consolidated versus having to go to your separate, you know, email provider, your, you know, analytics and, uh, you know, personalization platform, it's just uh, makes a ton of sense. 
You, you nailed it. Yeah. On average, it's like 12 and a half systems. So you've, you've, you've absolutely nailed it. And in the old days, we used to talk about the swivel chair problem. The marketer has to go from one application to the next application to the next application, whether it's trying to identify a segment or trying to orchestrate campaigns across multiple channels. And, and it, it really now is that the marketer is going through application fatigue and, and they really need to understand who Mark Galley is rather than me being seven anonymous users and I open email from time to time. They need to understand how I'm engaging. But equally important, they have to take that insight and actually drive personalization and orchestrate campaigns in the exact same platform because that gap is just, it just, it just makes it more difficult and reduces the uh, customer experience, but quite honestly also reduces the understanding for the marketer of how people are actually engaging with their brands. Yeah, and like you said, the end consumer is, the customer is actually benefiting from this because uh, it's talking to them more on a one-to-one basis. That's exactly right. So is there a, a customer that you can share that, you know, obviously is a, a user of your suite? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we have, we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, uh, of uh, uh, customers. One that, one that really comes to mind that I love talking about just because I'm passionate about their overall product is an outdoor clothing company called Steo. So think of them as a, as a small Patagonia. They're out of Jackson hole. If in the winter you're out walking around, you'll, you'll, you'll see an awful lot of people, um, you know, with their, with their brand and with their uh, gear. So, you know, they, when we, when we first started to engage with them, so pre-installing us, like they really struggled with how do we understand how customers are engaging with us. They really are motivated by, so they were first a catalog uh, retailer. They're now brick and mortar as well as large e-commerce player. But it was, you know, it was all about profitability for them. But it, it, to, to ultimately drive profitability, you have to understand how consumers are interacting with you so that you can influence their behavior, get them to first conversion, then get them to repeat and ultimately uh, uh, loyalty. Uh, but then at the same time, it's all about inventory control too. So it's matching, you know, obviously need up with um, or demand up with, with, with uh, supply. So their marketing was really driven of limited insights so they were just doing a bunch of basically blind promotions at the at the time but they knew that like personalization and understanding um, uh, the overall customer journey was just absolutely critical for them so they were really intrigued by being able to stitch users across not only devices but overall systems so that they could understand Mark Galley's life cycle but do that at mass and then what they were like okay we want to drive behaviorally triggered messaging against them. And what we saw in the initial phase was they only increased their outbound messaging digitally by 2%, but they nearly doubled their um, uh, revenue. And they were able to do that because all of a sudden they understood that Mark Galley was a male and that when I started to engage, you know, send me a message from a brand, brand ambassador versus send me a promotion, for example, because I'm inspired by the brand ambassador, it actually got a higher conversion with a lower dependence on an overall discount, where prior to us, they were just sending discounts at anyone who would open an email, for example, because that was the only channel that they have. And that was the only way that they could kind of measure their, their success through opens and, and uh, clicks. But all of a sudden, what they would see is that I'd be engaging on the website, 
but I might not be opening emails, right? But they could still identify me so that then they could start to target me. And then as they increased in the level of sophistication fairly rapidly, they were like, well, you know what? Mark Galley is now after he's bought twice, he's, he doesn't need that 10% discount, that 15% discount. Instead, what he wants is he wants a message from a brand ambassador on how, you know, they were um, skiing out of bounds and how great the gear was and how good the uh, trip down to Argentina was in the summer to go skiing down there. Like all of that messaging actually drove a higher conversion from their customers and also reduced the overall dependency on, on, on uh, budget. And that's just one example of how do you map out the customer lifecycle? How do you understand the content that you want to put in front of those individual customers as they engage through the overall customer, uh, uh, through the overall lifecycle to ultimately increase conversion and increase uh, profitability for the company? So what's the current state of your business in terms of you know, employee headcount, scale, or yeah, so you know we are uh, we're just crossed the um, 110 employee count, so growing really really rapidly. Um, we grew well north of 100 uh, percent last year, and 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 you know we're only one uh, quarter in right now, but but had a record breaking quarter in uh, Q1 2019. So really really bullish how uh, you know 2019 is already shaping up and 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 where the overall company is. We were fortunate enough we did a 30 million dollar Series B. Uh, just about a year ago. So actually Q1 of uh, uh, 2018. So have a fantastic syndicate of backers that believe in building companies um, in the long haul, you know, companies that, um, uh, uh, you know, are large self-sustained independent uh, in independent companies. And, um, you know, we're, we're thrilled to be working with them and, and, and we're totally bullish where we're headed. Now, as you, as you mentioned, you're continuing to grow. So you're, you're hiring. So uh, are you pretty much hiring across the board, all functional areas? We are. That's exactly right. Yeah. So uh, we're making heavy investments in the research and development space. Uh, we continue to scale up the customer success organization and the, uh, you know, go to market organization as well. We've got, you know, a number of uh, open account director positions as well as business development roles, uh, continuing to add to marketing as well as, uh, you know, every level of the customer success and engineering teams too. So, uh, you know, really, really fortunate uh, to, um, uh, you know, welcome new uh, uh, Zayas employees in on a, on a weekly basis right now. Now, your career path, as we just, you know, took the journey, you know, you um, went to B school, then, you know, go to market team, you know, VP of marketing, chief revenue officer to CEO of running the company. So what, what advice would you give to other individuals that are trying to, you know, work their way towards that similar type of career path? Yeah, I, I, I think like, so I, I obviously love startups. I've, I've, I've really kind of built, built my career around those. I think like for at least me, it was really important for me to, to, to play as many different roles in, the, in, a, in a tech company as possible. So as I mentioned early on, you know, I was part of the customer success organization, helping clients post-implementation. But as I you know, grew into a district manager position there, I started to get exposure into sales. And then 
you know, when I joined Siebel, I was in the product marketing organization, which was really tightly aligned with sales, but it was also about how do you take that customer feedback and push it back into the product organization and the research and development. So that position allowed me to see a number of different, um, you know, functions within the, within the company. And then when I started to really join even earlier stage startups, Siebel wasn't really a startup. It was a um, public company at the time I joined, but MicroStrategy was pre-public and uh, certainly was a startup. But when I started joining companies that were 10, 15, 20 people, you know, I was fortunate enough to see companies of different levels of growth and um, uh, and different go-to-market models. So I participated in enterprise sales models, channel-driven businesses, high-velocity inside um, uh, inbound uh, marketing-led uh, sales models or go-to-market models as well. And I think like... So when I really, over the last 15 years, it was seeing companies in different industries and, you know, seeing different go-to-market models, which, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to pattern recognize success and, and, and ultimately what that looked like. So I think my advice is, is, is people who want to grow in startups and, you know, uh, attain higher levels of management within the startups is see as many different departments as you can as early as you can, but then also make sure that you're spending enough time to really understand how a business works. But if you have the opportunity to see different scale of organizations, and different go-to-market models, you know, jump right in. Don't be afraid of it, actually embrace it because uh, as you continue to go on, each business is different, but you have to level your, you, you have to leverage your experience to really, um, you know, figure out what is, what is right for each of those individual organizations. Now, what are the key factors an entrepreneur should be thinking about as it relates to their go-to-market strategy if, you know, they are in that relatively early stage? Yeah. And, you know, um, this is at least the way that I do it. So, uh, you know, every, everyone, I think, you know, will uh, certainly find their way. But I think the biggest thing is be aggressive. And I don't mean be aggressive from a sales perspective and, you know, uh, be a use, quote unquote, use, use car salesperson, but instead be aggressive with your testing. So um, really go in and make sure when you do test something that you test it at enough scale to really get an accurate read. You're never going to get a statistically relevant sample, but like, you know, in the last four businesses that I've been in, all of those startups, you know, as we've been looking to test different markets or even, you know, identify different potential um, uh, uh, lead sources, for example, go in and have a really big test. Don't be scared to uh, spend some money. So when I brought in my first VP of marketing, um, you know, at these at these last three uh, companies, it really was like operate like you don't have a budget for the next two to three months. Um, drive a ton of leads at us so that we can identify the different buying patterns of different types of customers. And quite honestly, it gives us visibility into those different types of uh, customers and, and identify who's going to actually spend money with us. So I think it's, don't be timid, be aggressive with your overall testing because ultimately, even though it's expensive, time is your most precious commodity. And when you identify the true needs of a viable market, that's when you can start to tune and, and, and hone it in. And particularly when you're starting out, it's just critical to find that, that uh, viable, viable economic buyer. Now, as you've been, obviously, as CEO and you know, prior positions, you've, you've, you've managed a lot of people. So what are, 
what should people be thinking about like to, to be a successful manager? Like, like what do you think is key to that? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, the more I go on, the more simple I, I try and try and make things. So what I would say first and foremost is, and, and, and so many people say something similar to this is, but let people stretch their wings, right? Don't micromanage them, certainly guide them, give them guardrails, but really let them push themselves because, you know, they're really going to excel at that, at that point. And with that, you know, guide individuals through tough times. That's just another way of saying like embrace failure. But really what it is, is it's that resilience and it's that comfort that like someone can come to you and say, you know what, this isn't working, but it's not working because of X, Y, and Z. When someone's comfortable enough to do that, you've, you've got them in a really good space where they're going to stretch their wings. So don't be shy about letting people stretch their wings, but then guide them through those overall tough times. Now, what I would say is, and a lot of people say this too, but what I would say is if someone's not going to make it, you got to be honest with them. But first and foremost, you got to be honest with yourself. Don't linger on someone who's, who's just not going to cut it. And, um, you know, startups are hard places. People either excel or don't excel within startups. So just be honest, you know, with yourself about an individual's performance. And then the last thing I would say, and this is as you're, as you're setting goals for an organization or a large department, really make it simple. So focus on a small group of goals and chunk it out. And, and I think in a startup, you have to send, set that long-term vision. But at the same time, you, you, you really got to make sure people are focused on the right thing quarter over quarter over quarter. So it's, you know, chunk out those big audacious goals into attainable but stretch goals at a, at, a, at a quarterly level. So make sure that the path is clear over the next 12 months um, uh, as you actually move from one quarter to the uh, next. Those, those are the uh, key things. And how about even earlier, like, like hiring? Like, so h- how do you think about hiring, whether it's for, uh, you know, across the organization at Zayas or, or direct reports? Yeah, so this has evolved over my over my career as well. I think like for me, the one tip that I would share with people is really rely on blind references. I know this sounds odd, but like someone early in my career said, base your base eighty percent of your hiring decision on the blind reference and twenty percent on the actual interaction um, with the person. And as I've gone on my career, I rely on that more and more, and that has really, really benefited me. It's like, you know, like if you're talking to a blind reference, they're going to be really honest with you. And if you ask questions that, that just cut to the core, something like, and I use this, this question all the time, tell me something extraordinary that that person has done. And I think it's like a blind reference gives you the opportunity to dig in and really either verify or identify why you're going to hire that person. Like what is their true strength that they will bring to the organization? And so, you know, for a long time now, but early in my career, someone gave me that uh, tip, rely 80% of your hiring on a blind reference. And um, uh, that's, a, that's a fantastic thing we, we, we leverage here at uh, Zayas. So what's the best way to find a, a blind reference? Is it just go through LinkedIn and identify some mutual connections and, and reaching out? 
Yeah, that's right. Like leverage on LinkedIn and, and um, you know, leverage on, the, on your own personal network as well as the, uh, you know, corporate network. But that's exactly right. Got it. So what do you like to do these days outside of work for fun? So one of the things I, I really love to do is, is uh, run. It, it, it allows me to, you know, kind of get alone, create a lot of white space in my head and work through any of the issues or um, uh, challenges we're, we're uh, having at work. So running is, is one of those things I, I really love out of work. Now, do, do you run with music, uh, audio books, or does it, you know, just clear the minds, empty empty in the yeah. head. Yeah. It's, it's a uh, funny you say that. So I've been a runner for a long time, but you know, for the last 20 years or so, uh, I've run without any music and, um, some people find it a little odd, but for the last, you know, gosh, 10 uh, years or so, I'll get up at about four 30 in the morning and I'll go out and I'll run. Um, and it's just one of those times, like there are not many people awake and I don't listen to music. So it really is, you're completely alone. It's dark. It's very quiet. But uh, for peaceful. me, at least, yeah, it's super peaceful. And, and um, uh, I just find it really, really fulfilling. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, just a, a good way to kind of bring everything down. And like, you're not getting attacked with email and people, you know, sending you texts or whatever. It's just, uh, it's just you, the road. And I'm sure you probably get a lot of strategic thinking done, too. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's just it, there are zero distractions. Like people are not up then. So as you said, you're not worried about your inbox. You're not receiving Slack messages or, or a text. It's just alone time. And, and it really is strategic thinking. Got it. Well, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing uh, your background, all the great stuff that Zayas is up to, and obviously all the, uh, the great advice for other entrepreneurs. As you mentioned, uh, Zayas is hiring across the board. So if you want to check out their job openings, you can go to uh, venturefizz.com backslash Zayas or go direct to their careers page to see all the openings. Mark, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Keith. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.